The Houthi leadership in Yemen tells the Saudi-led coalition to take up their problems with Iran directly. The U.S. holds a summit with leaders across Asia on the danger of China. A member of the Moroccan parliament suggests getting rid of pensions. And a couple from New York is kidnapped and brought to Canada to be held ransom. This is the world at large, and we are Politics 1001. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The World at Large, where we cover news from all corners of the globe. If you enjoy, please remember to share, leave a review, and of course, click that subscribe button. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of our podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The World at Large. I am very excited to be here today because we are talking about Yemen. And everybody loves to talk about Yemen. Yes, we all love to talk about Yemen. Um, because Yemen, of course, is embroiled in a little bit of a civil war. And it's important to understand what's going on in that civil war if we ever wish to end it. So, why don't we dive into that a little bit. Reports have been released by the Yemeni army that over 1,000 Houthi soldiers have been killed this month by their forces. 215 of which were military commanders. So, let's backtrack a little bit. What are the Houthi rebels? Let's go into a little bit of a description of them. Well, the Houthi rebels are a militant group that rose up against President Hadi, um, the, rec- the UN rec- internationally recognized president of Yemen, um, in defiance of him because they said that he was not a very democratic figure and they don't like him. They don't want him to be in charge of Yemen. The Houthis, they're for the people. They're the Andrew Jackson of Yemen, right? They want they want to, for the common man. And so the Houthis are rising up against President Hadi. The Houthi rebels are backed by uh, the Iran and... Well, President Hadi is backed by the Saudi coalition, which is led by, of course, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and financially the United States. So we kind of have these two sides are going on, skirmishing a little bit in their proxy wars in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia and, and Iran, they're not really affected that much by the war, but Yemen, they are sadly the battleground of this. So, Muhammad Ali al-Houthi, the leader of the Revolutionary Committee, which leads the Houthi rebels, has, of course, been very open about how about his opinion on Yemen being used as the battleground. He has called on both Saudi Arabia and the United States to settle their accounts with Iran and to stop damaging Yemen in the process. Um, So what he's saying is, do not listen. Listen, Saudi Arabia, Iran. You need to listen up for a minute. I know you guys don't like each other. I understand your your religions are a little bit different. I know we're all Islam, but you guys are, one of you are Sunni, one of you are Shia, and I know you want to fight it out. I understand. I, I get it, dude. Like, I, I, I think different ways about religion, too. But do not use our country as a battleground. I do not like it. It's inappropriate. There's tons of Yemeni, millions of Yemenis who are struggling to get food because you cannot decide what type of religious sect should be dominant in the Middle East. It's immature. So he said specifically in an interview with the German newspaper Der Spiegel, he said, and quote, Why are Saudi Arabia and the United States fighting a war against us? On the pretext of our support from Iran? If we are funded by Iran, please bomb Iran, the financing party. Don't massacre Yemenis. This is exactly what we said to the Saudis and Americans. If you have the accounts with the Iranians, then settle them with the Iranians. Um, So the Houthis went on to slam the Saudi kingdom directly, saying that they were puppets of the U.S. government. He said that the U.S. just demands a price. All they do, you got to pay us up, Saudi Arabia, and then we will, of course, provide you with the weapons and the resources and, of course, the international backing that comes with the um, United States endorsement of the war. And so the Houthi rebel is calling the Saudi Arabian king weak. He's saying he can't actually run his own country. He needs U.S. support. You need to be the American puppet. And so that that's a little bit of the tension that you're seeing. But 
the message that he's trying to put forth is stop using us as the battleground. And as I said earlier, he doesn't feel like it's appropriate. Like, settle with the Iranians. Go bomb Iran. He says it in this quote specifically. He says, bomb Iran. Do not attack Yemenis. Um, and so we so that that is what he said. And he said that the U.S., the, the Riyadh will always pay, that Riyadh will always pay the U.S. because, of course, as he thinks, the Saudi Arabia is a puppet of the United States. So looking at the broader scheme of this conflict, um, it's been going on for a long time, right? It started uh, in 2011, and an estimated 200,000 people were killed since its beginning. So the issue, of course, is that both sides continue to fight for the cause that they believe is the correct one. Um, so everyone thinks you know, Yemen's completely impoverished. There are parts of Yemen that are fine. I mean, you look at the port city of Aden, the capital, Sana'a, they're actually, they're doing okay. They're like normal, the normal That's cities. Good. But, but if you're not living in the urban hubs, then it's a little bit more difficult to find food because that's where all the food is shipped to. Um, no one's shipping it out to, to the, like, 50 miles outside of Sanaa. So it's, it's quite difficult for people. And so specifically, um, a UN report approximates that about 24 million people are fully reliant on foreign aid groups to receive these said groceries and medication and, and so forth. And so Saudi Arabia, the leader of the coalition against the Houthi rebels and Iran, feels surrounded by Iran's attempts to increase its influence around the Middle East. Um, so what what this means is that Iran is kind of encroaching on Saudi Arabia's sovereignty, or so it feels like that. Um, this means that this means that they're that they're they're almost they feel like they're being surrounded because because that means that you have armies like from Syria to Lebanon to Iraq and and these all have various levels of proxies there in Lebanon you have Hezbollah and I mean in the Gaza Strip you have Hamas I didn't say that earlier um you have the Syrian regime which is backed by Iran you have and Iraq has actually tried to not get involved the Iraq tries to be a lot more pro-US um they want the US involvement more but there are still Iranian bases in Iraq and so if you look at a map you see you have Iran in the northeast you got Saudi Arabia in the southwest and What's on the so that means if you kind of look if you kind of imagine it guys imagine if you guys get the geopolitical map of the Middle East but that means you got some countries in between and up north of Saudi Arabia you got Iraq and then you got Syria and then you got Lebanon all of which are governed semi by uh, proxies of Iran which of course means that Saudi Arabia is like wait a second I know Iran starts here but it's extending a little bit west and. We feel a little bit uncomfortable about that because you, we don't want you spreading your influence. And so this, of course, a lot of analysts believe is the reason why Saudi Arabia or the Gulf states in general, Saudi Arabia has not done this yet, but the Gulf, some Gulf states like the UAE and Bahrain have decided to open up ties with Israel because although they do not like each other on a political level, they also love each other on a political level because they both hate Iran and they do not like the expanse of Iran, expansionist vibes that Iran is giving off throughout the Middle East um, in that... We both hate them. We don't like each other. We don't like how you're treating the Palestinians. Let me get that clear, Israel. But we also hate Iran. We care about our sovereignty first. So why don't we just, why don't we team up a little bit? Kind of sounds like a bad rom-com. Yes. <laughs> love each other. They hate each other. They can't decide. Yeah, so very wise, Ian. Um, and so the coalition, the Saudi-led coalition, which is, of course, Saudi, Saudi-led, but... Also in the U- also the UAE is in it. Um, they believe that the Houthi rebels are just an extension of Iran, which to an extent they are. Um, the Houthi rebels are funded by Iran. They get all their funding from there. But the leader of the Houthi rebels, who, as I said earlier, um, his name is 
Muhammad Ali al-Houthi, he said that, no, 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 Iran does not fund us. I mean, they do fund us. They fund us a little bit. I, I understand. But at the same time, our weapons are like pre-World uh, like War II level. Like we do not have very good technology. We are struggling here. Uh, we, we use what we can get. But Iran doesn't help us. There was a rumor going out that um, Al-Houthi visited Iran and visited with diplomats from Iran. But he's denied this. He said, no, 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 I do not, I do not visit Iran. That is a myth. I have never gone there. I stay here in Yemen with the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so they deny that Iran is directly in control of them, although um, the enemy says the otherwise. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's, that, that is what's going on in Yemen right now. This one, I, I said at the start briefly that 1,000 Houthi soldiers have been killed this month. That's a little bit more than normal. Uh, obviously, the, the 1,000 deaths in a month is, is not good from a military perspective. That means the war is heating up just a little bit, but... It does not seem like there's a war, and there's an end, there's a sight, there's no end in sight, end in sight to the war. Uh, because, because this the problem is you have a lot of proxies, right? Uh, these two groups, they're fighting each other, but civil wars need to play themselves out. You know, in every civil war in history, it plays themselves out, but it's hard for that to happen when there's foreign interests involved, because they don't want the war to end, and they're wealthy and rich and powerful enough to the point where they can continue to fund a lost war. Um, and I'm not saying that either side is losing per se. What I am saying is if one side were losing, it wouldn't matter because the other, because their funders would still funnel money in there because they're like, we've already invested too much at this point. You can't just back out. Um, and so that's kind of why the Yemen civil war is continuing to drag on. And of course, um, the despisal, the despise for the other side, Iran hates President Hadi and President Hadi hates the Houthi rebels. He says they're rising up and they're trying to take my place. I'm not going to allow that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with that, um, we're going to move on. So we're going to move on now to a summit that happened in Asia, um, in which Yoshihide Suga, who's the new prime minister of Japan, if you remember Shinzo Abe resigned yes. um, due to health reasons. Pleasure. <laughs> yeah, so podcast, go check it out, guys. Um, and so Yoshihide Suga, the new prime minister, has met with U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to discuss countering the expanding influence of China. So if you guys don't know, Japan and the United States do not really like China that much. They don't like them that much because they feel a little bit threatened. China tends to do this thing where they don't directly annex countries, right? China does not do that. What they do is they pressure them economically. So countries like Thailand and Vietnam, whose um, economies are not as powerful, tend to have to do what China wants because um, they, they can't refuse economically. They, they're, they're given loans and they can't pay them back because they look in the short term, um, which I mean, may be good for the people infrastructure wise, but it might not be good for the country in that they now owe a lot of debt to China. And so China knows this and they kind of take advantage of it. Um, and so Japan feels a little bit threatened, but they're a little, they're more powerful. They're the third largest economy in the world. They can, they can handle China more than um, a small Southeastern Asian country can. Um, and so also that was there, I believe is South Korea. And I think Mongolia was there. <laughs> um, cool. I like Mongolia. So they're all there. And so Mike Pompeo said this specifically in a quote about China. I also look forward to renewing our resolve to protect our precious freedoms and the sovereignty of diverse nations in the region. As partners in this quad, it is critical now more than ever that we collaborate to protect our people and partners from the CCP's exploitation, corruption, and coercion, end quote. CCP, of course, is the Chinese Communist Party. Um, So... 
China was not very happy about this. We do not like, China does not like being called expansionist. They do not like being called corrupt and, ex, and that they exploit people. No, we don't do that. No, I um, wouldn't like that either. China believes, that, like, China legitimately believes that they are, well, the people of China believe, I don't know what the government thinks personally, but uh, the people of China believe that they're helping other people, right? They mm-hmm. send all this money to Africa, especially. I mean, this is very well known now that there's a lot of infrastructure projects going on in Africa that are funded by the Chinese government. Um, and a lot of people see that as a good thing because like the people are helping, even if there's debt involved, like um, are you really saying debt overweighs infrastructure? Yeah. So, I mean, these infrastructure projects are like a lot of people are like, Oh, well, China's just trying to kind of catch them in their economic ring. But others, um, a lot of analysts are saying, well, I mean, whatever. <laughs> that's, that's not the priority right that's here. Correct. So China was not a, they were not very happy about being called this. As I said earlier, got a little bit off topic, but they were not happy about being called coercive. So they said specifically, end quote, we hope that relevant countries will do more to enhance mutual understanding and trust among countries in the region and promote regional peace, stability, and not the opposite. So China thinks that, you know, they're, they're not, these countries around them, like the U.S. and Japan and South Korea, they don't like them very much. And they have a reason to think that because, well, they don't. <laughs> um, they're, not, they're not very good friends. They, they're a lot more westernized. They tend to be allies with the U.S. Um, and so China, believe it or not, has a lot of conflicts with people around them. Um, uh, specifically, don't believe it. I'm, <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of conflict. That was a pretty surprise. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name a few in a minute, but... I just think it's important to know that the tensions between U.S. and China are all-time high. President Trump is trying to move business away from China. They're tr- he's trying to bring everything back to America. And the Chinese government believes, it, well, this kind of infringes on their plan just a little bit of, well, Xi Jinping wants to be the largest economy. He's the president of China. He wants China to be the number one superpower by the year 2030. That's kind of his goal. Um, he has a set forth plan. He's thinking long term, right? He's ambitious. Hmm, so ambitious. Maybe by the time they become a superpower, we could become a super podcast. Hmm. By 2030? Could we make that happen, guys? Yeah. We just have to bully a few of our neighbors. Yeah. Um... Send aid to other neighbors. Yeah, dude. Okay, so more and more countries. So the reason that China feels a little bit threatened is because more and more countries are sending naval and economic support to the island of Taiwan, which is recognized by mainland China as rightfully part of their nation. They said the Taiwanese broke away. The only reason they're alive right now, and the only reason that we do not own Taiwan, is because the U.S. sent their navy in and they protected them. <sighs> U.S. always getting involved, and and so the West as a whole has been very wary of China. They think that. China, of course, they, this money issue of, of economic suppression, as, as this term is coined by Western analysts, they, they think they, they are very threatened by China. And so they, we thought it was important to mention, as I said earlier, many disputes that China has. So I'll go through a few right now, just quickly list them. So China has as follows. Um, territorial, they have territorial claims in Russia. They have claims in Eastern India. They have claims on Taiwan. Um, they have claims in Mongolia. They have claims in the Philippines and they have claims in Southeastern Asia. They also have military disputes with, well, Taiwan again. And then they also have them with India and Australia. So, so China is honestly, they they got a lot, they got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, they're all over the place. Every side. Um, yeah. So a lot of territorial claims. They also claim the entire South China Sea because it's in the name and I think it's theirs. Yeah. And but you do see a lot more of a naval presence, as you guys saw if you follow Instagram Politics One Thousand and One. Canada sent a naval vessel to Taiwan, um, a warship actually, and this is following the U.S. increased naval presence as well as the Australian naval presence. 
So that's something to look out for. Um, the main point of the summit, again, is to tell to the world how these countries are united against the expansion influence of China. Of course, China does not think they're expansionist. That's pretty much what you should get out of this. <laughs> so we're going to move on now. We're going to go over to Morocco. Ooh. Ooh. The country in the westernmost point of Africa, westernmost point of the Arab League, Morocco tends to be known to be a lot more prosperous than most of its Arab neighbors. They do they do quite well for themselves. Yeah. Uh, however, the member of the Moroccan parliament, um, he's from the Authenticity and Modern Modernity Party, suggested in in the parliament that its members should not receive pensions. Um, so the Authenticity and Modernity Party is called PAM. Um, somebody referred to it as PAM. <laughs> um, and the deputy of the party... Ibtissam Azoe wrote about it on her Twitter, or on her Facebook page, rather, and she was talking about how this was not, it was not appropriate to have pensions. She said it was like a waste of government funds and what have you. And so, uh, he, she said specifically, I hope that this closes a final bow and be known as the abolition of pensions of parliamentarians. So, this is not very popular in Morocco, as you can imagine, from the perspective of the politicians. Um, why do you think it's not popular? To not want pensions, because yes. they want the money. <laughs> they it's want their the they want their pensions. In fact, yes. this was tried in 2018 to a lesser extent. Before it was, you don't get your pension right when your term was finished, because that was the original rule, uh, which still is the rule. But um, the, it was tried where you don't get your pension until your your pension until your term is finished. But rather, when you are 65, then you could start collecting the pension. Um, but this was again rejected because buddy. Um, of course. And so the members of parliament were not too keen on their pensions being abolished or even pushed. Um, so it's most people think this is going to fail. It's a little confusing why she even she's even bringing this up to the parliament, but you know, I guess it's worth a shot. But it is popular among average taxpayers. A lot of Moroccans have said, "Yeah, I'll move back to Morocco if you know there's there's a little bit more less there's less of an emphasis on government spending money on itself and more on the people." Um, and so that. Because a lot of people think that it's a drain on the government funds to have these pensions given out so early. Because obviously, gov every government gives out pensions. But it's more of, um, if you finish a term, you start collecting a pension. What if you're like 40? <laughs> do you need a pension? So that, that's the debate. But obviously, the parliamentarians are like, well, I, I mean, if I can do it, why should I get rid of it? Right. Naturally. So that's the logic there. A um, little bit of a short story, but cool to note nevertheless. Um, so we're going to move over to a multimillionaire software entrepreneur named John McAfee. You guys probably know the name McAfee. I feel like it's everywhere. Um, it's like a little bit of a company thing. Um, you see it on, what is it? I believe it's software. It's an antivirus software. I think I might have it. Or I think I, I don't want to like name what I use because it's not sponsored. But um, <laughs> McAfee is an antivirus software. And the owner of that is, again, a multimillionaire. And he was just arrested in Spain for tax evasion. Um, and so that's not good. You do not want to be arrested for tax evasion. Usually, I don't think you want to be arrested. You don't want to be, but if you had a preference, certain tax evasion would not be one of those reasons. No. It'd be more like I arson. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, probably not. Or like, I don't know. I I think the lesson is you don't want to be arrested. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just go with that. Okay. And so. Um, <laughs> McAfee was arrested in Spain for, again, tax evasion. And this was revealed on Monday by a federal court in Memphis, Tennessee. But wait, I thought he was arrested in Spain. Well, apparently he was fleeing. He, he knew he had tax evasion. He was fleeing. He was currently going on a flight. He was in Spain. He was arrested in the Barcelona airport. And on he, he had a flight registered to Istanbul in Turkey. So he was trying to run away to the Turkish government. But he got caught just in time. 
And so, according to the report, he evaded not thousands or hundreds of thousands, but millions of dollars in taxes. Mm. So, when I say you don't want to get caught for tax evasion, if you're going to get caught for, like, $30, you know, that's very different from a few million. It's very different. Um, because he did this thing. So, how did he do this? Like, it's millions of dollars. How did he do this? Well, he did this, for, first of all, it was things like a private yacht and real estate. Like, really expensive stuff. Um, by, mean, do you blame him? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and he did this for real estate by registering this stuff under fake names. He just didn't, he just didn't use his real name. He's like, okay, I don't have to pay taxes. Who's going to catch me? So the Spanish police said specifically, end quote, he was traveling to Istanbul, and when his documents were run through the database, it emerged that he was the subject of a U.S. warrant on fraud charges. So they caught him just, again, just in time. It is Wednesday now. He was arrested, I believe. It was two days ago, or, on, or Tuesday, I cannot remember. Uh, but he... He was caught because, again, he was just put in the system, and yeah, now he's going to go to trial, and he can face up to 30 years in prison. So, not good for him, but that's probably why you don't... So, the lesson here, guys, is do not evade millions of dollars in taxes. Just pay it. I know it sounds like a lot if you got to pay it up front, but if you just do it little by little, and I'm sure it's not as bad as 30 years in jail. Yes, but the dream private yacht does sound nice. It does. I'm not convinced. A little jail time for a private yacht. Only 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> then he's out. Easy peasy. It's not like he's 65 or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Maybe he can enjoy his yacht when he's like 95. Whatever. I, that's a good point. All right. So anyways, don't, don't we're not encouraging tax evasion. So anyways, um, our last story of the day is um, starts sad, ends happy. So five drug dealers, four of them were from Quebec and that one little guy from New York, um, they kidnapped an elderly couple from a small town 15 miles south of the Canadian border and ferried them up to Canada to hold them for ransom. So, um, weird, weird story. But um, the ransom they wanted was 100 pounds or 45 kilograms worth of cocaine, which the police seized days prior. They wanted it back. They said, well, look, the U.S. is going to seize our cocaine. We're just trying to smuggle it. Mind your own business. Let us do our thing. You're going to seize it. Fine, we're going to seize these elderly people. <laughs> so, yeah, an eye for an eye. Yeah. And so they held them hostage. And the head of the five guys, his name is Gregory Brown. And Gregory Brown, again, he's a pretty pretty well-known drug smuggler and he tried to hold them ransom. However, he's currently arrested, so they didn't work out very well um, because it's just not going to work. They're, the police are not going to give you cocaine, especially 100 pounds of it. I don't know what he was thinking. But um, the head, uh, yeah, so, so Gregory Brown was arrested. The attorney... Um, if, who announced the charges, Antoinette T. Bacon said this in announcing Brown's charges, end quote. According to the complaint, Brown and his co-conspirators put an elderly couple through a terrifying ordeal, end quote. Yep, sounds pretty terrifying. Yeah, so the couple said that they had hoods put around their head, they couldn't see, and they had to sit in the car for like two hours while they were brought up to Canada. I feel like on the border, if you're a Canadian border guard, I thought you looked in the car, but I don't know, maybe not. Maybe they were hit hiding through the border. Maybe they were hit under the seat. Oh, yeah, maybe not. I think the whole, the most terrifying part of this ordeal was going to Canada for them, probably. Oh uh, yeah, Probably. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So scary. Um, I do. I do believe you can cross the Canadian border um, without a, a checkpoint. I mean, the officials you're supposed to do a checkpoint, but like, I know there's like forest and stuff. Like, <laughs> I guess if you really yeah. want to get over, you could go to Alaska and cross that way. Because there's no security there. It's just a big, long piece of, like, clearly defined cut grass area. 
You know you're crossing. And there's like a little coffee shop you can also cross into Canada. It's weird. Um, Thank you. Yeah. For letting well, me know. <laughs> like Next time my cocaine gets seized by the police, I'll know what to do. Then you'll... <laughs> uh, well, don't take someone ransom eaten. No, so, I was only going to go to the coffee shop. Yeah, well, just so you guys know, um, the couple's okay. They're fine. They're a little bit petrified because they got kidnapped. And they did not really... I mean, they didn't know what was going to happen to them. They were being held ransom for cocaine. <laughs> that might have turned into a shooting match, but they're fine. Um, they obviously they're retelling their story of how they had hoods on their head and whatnot. This is really scary, but um, it's good good to know that. But with that, guys, we're going to be wrapping up our podcast Aww. for today. Oh, I know it's so sad. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please make sure to subscribe and leave a like and a review. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is the world at large, and we are politics one thousand and one. Goodbye.